Hello and welcome everyone. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the National CMV Foundation podcast, CMV Speaks. My name is Kalia and I am the proud executive director of the National CMV Foundation. So what is CMV? In this case, congenital cytomegalovirus or CMV infection is arguably the most common preventable cause of neonatal disability in the U.S., affecting approximately more than 30,000 children per year. It is the leading cause of non-genetic hearing loss that infants are born with in the U.S. Every pregnant woman is at risk of acquiring CMV, yet only 9% know about it. Hence, why we have this podcast and why we do the work that we do. The National CMV Foundation is dedicated to preventing pregnancy loss, childhood death, and disability due to congenital CMV. And our podcast series, CMV Speaks, highlights advocacy, education, industry, and scientific advances bringing congenital cytomegalovirus to the forefront of the conversation. This podcast is brought to you by our sponsor and one of our dedicated partners, Moderna, whose mission is to deliver the greatest possible impact to people through mRNA medicines. So before we introduce our guest today, I definitely want to give a few minutes to shout out my co-host, Amanda. So Amanda, go ahead and introduce yourself. Hi, everyone. My name is Amanda Devereaux. I am the program director at the National CMB Foundation, and I am a proud CMB mom of a seven-year-old who was born um, somewhere between moderately and severely impacted um, by congenital CMB. And I'm super excited for our talk today. So thanks for letting me co-host, Kalia. You are more than welcome. Always happy to have you by my side doing this work. We've been doing it for quite some time. So excited as well for Today's episode, um, so without further ado, we are super honored and privileged to be talking and chatting with the Megan Nix. Megan, I added the, yes, the Megan Nix, longtime CMV advocate, warrior, amazing supporter for the foundation, author of the recently released Remedies for Sorrow, um, which actually was just on the recommended reading list for People's Magazine. So Megan, just so, so, so excited to have you join us today and to learn more about your book. So for those who may not know your story, who do not yet have a copy of the book, you don't have to give us the full spiel right now. Please share kind of an intro, who you are, your story, and your journey with CMV. Great. Thank you so much for having me. I love the National CMV Foundation. I'm excited to be on. And let's see, I was pregnant in 2015 with my daughter, Anna, who ended up having congenital CMV. She was small in utero, but the doctors didn't really notice that despite my intuitive and voiced feeling that she was too small. It wasn't until a 36-week ultrasound that showed she had microcephaly and her head was disproportionately small. But at that point, the OB just said, we'll have to wait and see, which is a common refrain throughout many of our children's lives who have CMV and really shortcuts their potential and the opportunity to learn more, to treat them, to be aware of it. And so when I gave birth to her. She was five pounds and she did not pass her in-hospital hearing tests, but no doctor said anything about CMV, despite the fact that, like you said, Kalia, it's the leading cause of non-genetic hearing loss and deafness. And 
I went home, just knew that something was different about her. And it wasn't until the pediatrician tested her at 10 days old and we got the results back when she was 13 or 14 days old that she was positive for congenital CMV. And in the interim of the test and getting the results back, like most CMV parents, I went down the rabbit hole of reading and was blown away by the statistics once I could find them, um, you know, beyond the very basic definitions of CMV that you first find online that makes it sound harmless. Once I dug just a little bit deeper, I was super taken aback by its silence in the obstetrical industry and our lack of dealing with it in newborns who have it at birth. And that began the writing process for me. I really started writing right when Anna was born in the night. I would wake up to nurse her and like take little notes on my phone or take little notes next to the bed, just feeling like this was the beginning of a story. And little did I know how much story there was between research and other families that I would meet. But it was just an impulse that came along with her. And her story has grown our family immeasurably. So just just as all CMV, all, all children with CMV, it's like, you know, it just totally changes the narrative for pregnancy, for families in beautiful ways and in difficult ways. Awesome. I love how you stated that. You stated that so just beautifully. And we obviously know the purpose behind writing this book is you know, obviously heavily centered on you sharing your story and your journey. What is the impact that you ultimately envisioned? Well, I was just thinking when you said that 9% of women know what CMV is, I would like to turn that on its head. So if about 90% of women do not know about CMV, I would like to see 90% of women understanding CMV and knowing how to reduce their risk of contracting it. And I think initially the goal of my book was to be the book I was looking for. When Anna was diagnosed, I just couldn't really find an intimate story that could lead me through the shock, the uncertainty, the logistics of a CMV diagnosis. And it's been one of the most rewarding things of writing this book is hearing from CMV moms who I don't know. Um, one said, now I'm not lonely anymore, which was so profoundly moving to me. And I think ideally every woman would read it. Um, but even, you know, just as a smaller goal for me, just to change hearts, if those are the hearts of parents who have children with CMB, then that is hugely impactful for me as a writer. And in a broader sense, the more people who read it, the better, obviously, from an advocacy standpoint. You know, obviously, the major goal is to prevent life-threatening disabilities through educating more women about CMV. So that's the, that's the end goal, which I'm sure is also the goal of the National CMV Foundation. 
And I love what you said uh, before we go on to the next question. I really love what you said about it kind of being the book that you wish you would have had the resources, the support. And that really, really stood out to me because we hear that often so much in our in our work, you know, oh, no one was talking about this. No one mentioned it. I had no idea. So I really hope this book can be a companion to others. And it's companionship for me. I think I was a little bit self-conscious putting this story out, knowing the diversity of the CMV experience. But it is, like I said, it's just been really moving and really meaningful to read people's responses that we might not have had the same exact path. And yet there's so much solidarity when you're reading a story that touches you somewhere that is similar, whether that's CMV or just motherhood in general or the unexpectedness of an unexpected child. So I think that's what literature does is it just connects people on that deep, deep level that we sometimes don't reach through social media or through just our really surface level interactions throughout the day as parents with young children. And I know it's very hard to get to reading sometimes with young children, but I think it's important to our society that we, you know, find that time, whether it's through an audiobook for 10 minutes in the car or a page a night. It doesn't have to be, you know, sitting and reading for hours, but I actually have it in my book that one thing I thought I would lose as a mother was my, the life of the mind was this intellectual component of myself. And I just prioritize that because it brings richness and, and learning to my life and connection that can be deprioritized in the craziness of today. First thing I want to say is thank you for writing the book. Um, I just, I think that this is just amazing. Um, And I think one of the greatest things we can do in this life is to give people a gift that we were not given. Oh, I love that. I just, I think you're giving people something that they didn't get. And I think that that's really, that's just so important for people to do that because I think you could have gone the other way with this and said, well, I didn't get that. So I'm not going to give that to anybody else. And so many of our families do that. They take what happened to them and they say, I'm not going to let that happen to somebody else. So Mm -hmm. thank you so much for doing that. Um, the, the biggest thing that came to mind when I read your book was validation. (laughs) I mean, Mm -hmm. From mm-hmm. the title, the, the subtitle specifically through the entire book, it just felt so validating. And I think that that's what our families are going to feel. And I'm just wondering if, if people have already said that to you. I mean, that it just feels like, yes, wow, this is yeah. what it felt for me too. Yeah, definitely. Um, yes, a number of them have said, like, I finally feel seen. My friend Jamie in Colorado, who is the hands and voices director here. She said that she said, you know, some people might have assumed I was exaggerating or, you know, making a big deal of something that isn't that big of a deal. And now they see this is a big deal and it is changing the way that they, um, you know, recognize her struggle and her experience. So for sure, that validation is so important, especially with a disease like CMV, where we have all felt invalidated 
by the lack of medical discourse surrounding it and public discourse surrounding it, it's always been minimized. So I think that validation is sort of twofold. It's personal and it's systemic. It it has been lacking in both personal ways for people and in systemic ways. And I've felt that too, when there are research studies that come out or the CMV conferences, when, when you're there, it's like you have this fullness that you don't feel in, in the day-to-day where you go to a doctor's appointment and you say, I have a child with congenital CMV. And the doctor says, did you contract it from kitty litter? Or where did you, where do you think you picked it up? And you just, it's like, you're just speechless. Like how do people still not know? And so when you find somebody who knows, it really is healing to, to feel known. So I do, I do feel that way myself. And I'm so grateful that people feel that way reading my writing. And yeah, full disclosure, Megan, you and I have known each other for several years and we, um, we are on a very similar timeline. Um, when, when Anna was diagnosed, that was the same month that my daughter Pippa was diagnosed only in utero. So right. we're kind of on the same timeline where we're learning about CMB at the same time. And so it was very, just such a reflection for me, um, going through the book because things were happening at about the same time for us. And another thing that we have in common here is we're both big John Krakauer fans. <laughs> and I, when I read his book, Into the Wild, I highlighted this, um, this quote. And it really just reminded me of my experience, um, you know, parenting a child with a disability. And, and he says, and, and then there was something in your book that kind of brought me back to it. And I went back to that quote. And he says, it's easy when you're young to believe that what you desire is no less than what you deserve, to assume that if you want something badly enough, it is your God-given right to have it. And then when I was reading your book, I'm on page 27 now, um, you talk about how you say, if I adhered to the prescribed plan for pregnancy, then I could resemble the women I saw online. I too could be the glowing owner of non-disabled kids. So mm-hmm. I just wanted you to talk a little bit about people, uh, I, I think all over, but, but in America, particularly where we are, people expect to have a perfectly healthy pregnancy and a perfectly mm-hmm. healthy baby. And they think if they do everything right, it almost feels like we feel entitled to that. Mm-hmm. And so I just kind of wanted you to to think about that a little bit and maybe give some feedback on you put that in there for a reason. And yeah. it's it's kind of a journey to get to a point where you're like, no, I, I no one's entitled to that. And, mm-hmm. and there's no guarantee. Right. Right. Yeah. And what a damaging mindset um, that a child would not be as valued if they are different, if they are disabled, if they are unexpectedly, you know, divergent from this image that most of us have in our heads, unfortunately, before we have children. I think in every child that a person has, there are unexpected qualities. And unfortunately, I think we we do have this controlling culture around child making and family growing where if it's not what we envisioned, then maybe we have failed to meet the goals of that endeavor. And that's just delusional. I mean, 
it, the entirety of pregnancy is blind faith. We have we have interventions that we put in place and we try to be healthy. And yet the end goal is to not have <laughs> designer babies that have the hair color and, you know, the eye color and the abilities that we foresee in this like homogenized world. And I think those of us who have gone through the experience of having a child born different, we would not trade that. We, we wanted education leading up to that point and we wanted to save them from challenges. And yet, and, and it's kind of hard to talk about because it is kind of paradoxical. Like, of course we want to do, we want to have best practices in pregnancy. One of which is reducing our risk at, of, at, reducing our risk of contracting a virus that could cause stillbirth or could cause early infant death. And yet at the same time, there's this other piece that isn't fair. That's like, if you are not doing exactly what you should be doing, you are going to have a child that maybe you didn't want. And that is just not that that's, that's part of like the fear culture surrounding pregnancy, that's not a part of the reality of motherhood, which is that motherhood is going to be hard. And no matter what you do, you cannot control any of the outcomes of, of that endeavor. And so I think just that, that portrayal of pregnancy as this like serene, controllable time period, for me at least, was really a facade that took me a while to like recognize and then say to myself, I approached this in a way that was not true and not loving, which, which would have looked more like, this is really hard. Let's talk about pregnancy as something that is very difficult for people and motherhood as something very difficult for people and yet is so worth it. And we just can't have this zero risk pregnancy approach, even with CMV, we could do everything possible and still have a child with CMV. And that is not a failure. That is life. But we deserve an education leading up to those outcomes. Absolutely. I totally agree, Megan. And it's some of it is coming through this journey and realizing you parent the child that you get. You don't mm-hmm. parent that you that you necessarily you know like you said this designer child that you you thought you're going to have but mm-hmm. I also think it's really it's a paradox and and I try and make sure to remind myself that both things can be true right you know it it can be you know amazing to parent a child with a disability and there's nothing wrong with with disability disability mm-hmm. is a part of life but it can also be true that it's difficult sometimes mm-hmm. so there is this ableism, you know, in, in pregnancy, where if, if you find out you're going to have a child with a disability, it's like, you know, everyone's so sorry. And they're so sad about it. Mm-hmm. And, but, but at the same time, it, you need to validate that. Yeah. It, it's going to be difficult and challenging sometimes. And so it can be beautiful and difficult. Right. I mean, it's not one or the other. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I, I totally agree. Um, and I like what you said, like two things can be true. I just read the book good inside. It's like a parenting book. Um, So this is a little bit of a tangent, but she says that this, this approach really changes your, your way of parenting too, to say that two things can be true when you're 
when you're looking at a child and you're either arguing with them or you're just, you know, in, in a struggle of some kind with them, it's often because you're holding on to your own rightness. Like I thought it was going to be this way and it should be this way. And really when you soften yourself to the reality that two things can be true, that your child is both tired and they really wanted something or, you know, whatever it is that when, when you approach, when you approach any situation as a parent with the mindset that two things can be possible, it removes the possibility of a power struggle. And I think that's, you know, that can be applied to the doctor patient relationship too. When a doctor's like, oh, CMV is rare. And the, the mother is like, no, like I, I want to talk about this. There has to be a way for us to see each other in these situations, or we're just going to be divided even further. Yes. Doctors might think that it is rare and it might be uncommon to have a child with congenital CMV and yet postnatal CMV is not rare and we need to talk about it. So um, I'm kind of rambling, but yeah, I think, I think that mindset is very humane to see, to see the broad spectrum of any issue, not just the one that we're holding tight to. I could not agree more. Um, I think a quote that came to mind as you both were talking is, and I'm sure we've all heard it, you know, in life, we often get what we need, not necessarily what we want. And I think that could apply to this in this context. And so you mentioned earlier, Megan, on how healing and cathartic this process was for you. So while we applaud the gift to those in the CMV community, seeing, being heard, being seen, feeling validated, support and resources, can you talk a little bit about how this helped you? I think writing always gives me a chance to deeply process the things that are going on in my life. I was blogging about Anna from the moment she was diagnosed and I'm not really a blogger per se, but it kept me accountable to the details of her life in a way that made me connect them in, in some sense to my past, to other people. It's sort of a way for me to weave together all the disparate elements of life and I think most writers and artists feel that the work itself creates revelations. So where I thought I was just sitting down to keep track of Anna's, you know, symptoms or cool things she was doing or her beauty, it would turn out through the writing process that I would realize something. And that was the case throughout the writing of the book where I would just be researching and somebody would say something to me in an interview or I would read, you know, Remedies for Sorrow. I don't even remember who brought up the concept of Remedies for Sorrow. It's a St. Thomas Aquinas um, document where he said there's these five things that can partially alleviate sorrow. Of course, not sorrow cannot ever be entirely remedied. It's a critical component of the human condition. But that was very pivotal for me to think about that. Have I 
have I walked through these remedies and did any of them work? And would any of these help other people? And so I think the writing process is just, for me, it's, it's a different part of my brain that digs into my heart. And I think sometimes I'll overthink things in a way that's more aimless if I don't put it down on paper. So that's just, that's just what the craft is for me. I think some writers hate writing. <laughs> there's actually, there's an essay about um, how painful writing can be for a lot of writers. And for me, it was very painful. I mean, the, the process of writing this book was not pretty. <laughs> it changed structures multiple times. It was rejected so many times, which reminds me of our first John Krakauer conversation, Amanda, where um, you told me that I think it was into thin air. I can't remember if it was that or into the wild, but that it was basically dead in the water. And you sent me an interview with him saying, look, like this book was not going to happen. And that was at the point that my book was very rejected by basically every editor I had sent it to with my agent. And I thought, okay, if Amanda believes this could happen, maybe it actually can. And if John Krakauer had a book that was not going to happen, maybe this will. And it was, it was really just so motivating to have that conversation with you, Amanda. And so the writing process also brings in other people for me where, you know, I talk about the writing and it's, and, and that part is pleasant to me, even if the craft itself can be painful and long and, um, you know, humbling as you have to delete and delete and rethink what you were saying. And for me, one of the great joys of being a nonfiction writer is getting to use the wisdom of others in my writing. So my book would be not published, I think, if I had not had the insights of other CMV moms like Kathleen Muldoon and Karina Briscoe and Megan Pesh, Dr. Megan Pesh. And so for me, those moments really make the writing process cathartic because I can tell their story in a way that enlightens everything that I might not have ever even seen in my own story. So maybe cathartic isn't quite the the right word, but it is it is a very fulfilling and transformative process for me to write nonfiction about other people who are experts where where I am not. Thanks. Awesome. Well said. No, we, we, and I just want to like shameless plug here, you know, thank you so, so much for continuing on the journey. I know how daunting that can be. Um, And you just get to a point where you're over it. Um, And as a writer myself, I took some time off because you just, you know, you, you get tired, you get burned out. Is this ever going to happen? So just thank you for staying committed. And that's really important. I, I write about that too, that there is this sort of, it's another facade that like, we have to keep going every single day, working, working, writing, writing. And that's just not reality for me. I have to take breaks and I have a lot of kids and, you know, I have a kid who needed a lot of therapies and it was not, you know, it was a slow burn. It was not like every day I sat down and wrote for six hours without stopping. I really had to step back from it when I first got uh, my my first round of rejections after the first manuscript went to editors in New York, we got 
26 rejections. And I, I was really, really upset about it. And I knew I just needed to take a step back and reframe it and, and look at it again and bring in some other people who could say like, this is why it's not selling. Again, these two things were true. The content is good. The story needs to be told, but where, how is it not reaching people? What, what do I need that I don't have yet? And that break was about six months long where I just sat with it. I just, I didn't write. I didn't work on it. I talked to other people. I grieved and came back to it and, and had some insight. And I think sometimes our processes as mothers or as mothers who are also doing something else, we have this urge to like make progress every single day. And that's not what progress often looks like. It often looks like one step back before we can go forwards or a significant waiting time before we're productive again. So thanks for mentioning that, Kalia, because that that is definitely part of this book was patience that I didn't really want to have. I could talk about this book all day. Um, so I'm going to move on to another question. Because I, I have, you should see my book. It's, it's highlighted all the way through. <laughs> there's little, there's little sticky notes everywhere. And I could, again, this could be a four hour podcast, but, um, to pivot a little bit, I want to talk about the CMB community a little bit, because you, I mean, like you said, you talk to several CMB moms throughout the book. Um, you talk about this camaraderie that you feel with the CMB community, mm-hmm. um, but one thing I want to want to call out here, I'm on page 62, is you say, because alongside everything else I'm juggling, I should not have to educate every pregnant woman I meet about the most common intrauterine infection. What a giant medical embarrassment to leave this topic to those of us who are already dealing with the daily burden of the disease. That just like hit me like a truck because mm. it is so true that the people who end up doing the majority of the work are the people who are impacted. Why is that the case? <laughs> Maybe you don't have any because we're awesome. Because <laughs> we're badasses. Um, yeah, I mean, because we're crazy educated. I mean, this is not part of the medical education. That's the embarrassment. And so we... You know, I write about Atul Gawande, who I just love. He's he's an excellent doctor and he's a researcher and he's so humble. He goes to these other fields. He There's a great essay, I think it's in the New Yorker, where he spends time with a five-star chef to see how a kitchen runs efficiently. And I think there's this there's this sort of subconscious mindset in medicine that doctors' brains are better than lay people's. And, and, and not necessarily like specific doctors think that, but there is definitely a paternalistic attitude within medicine. And that just isn't true. I mean, doctors spend tons of time in clinicals and, and they're highly intelligent and parents do too. We are essentially in clinicals all day with our children and we read the literature at night and we assemble you know, maybe the maybe maybe infectious disease specialists and CMB doctors are doing this as well. I'm I know they are, but we really contain a robust body of literature on our children's disease 
that a single doctor, a pediatrician is not likely to have. And so unfortunately that does put the burden on us and and some of it we carry willingly. But when we're carrying it in the face of almost total ignorance, that becomes offensive. When it's like an OB doesn't know that CMV is transmitted through toddlers, that is embarrassing. And we are very smart. We are devoted to this topic. And yet there needs to be some catching up in medicine to the knowledge that is out there about CMV since the 50s, since Thomas Weller grew it in culture. There is a body of literature that needs to be woven into medical school curriculum, and it isn't, and it continues to not be. And that continues to be frustrating to us. And then we have to like sort of, you know, mitigate our anger in order to insightfully deliver this information. (laughs) And that's a hard thing to do. And we're tired and there's skepticism and, and, you know, that's all coming at us when it should be coming at a professional who can, you know, with a lot less personal absorption say, no, you're wrong. This is a big deal. This is preventable. Here's what you do rather than a mother being looked at like, oh, you're a little crazy, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Well, and speaking of, you know, providers talking about other things, you devote a significant amount of time in the book to talking about Zika. And I, I loved how honest you were about that, because I think a lot of us had the exact same feeling when, you know, Zika was on the news every day. And that feeling was jealousy. Mm -hmm. And you Mm -hmm. call it right out there. And, and it's true. And But again, both things can be true. Zika can be a very important topic for people to know about and talk about. But it's also true that, you know, it's, it's not as common as CMV. And it's, it's something that maybe gets proportionally more, you know, more focus and attention than, than the number of disabilities that it causes. So just wanted to, to throw that out there and see if you had any thoughts on the whole Zika situation, because I think a lot of people had that exact same feeling. Yeah, that was a weird time. I think it was sort of an ugly response. Like, how can I be jealous of another dangerous disease? And yet, yet we were because, like you said, it was disproportionately heightened by the media while we are simmering in the silence of CMV. And people were reaching out to me to ask me if they should cancel vacations with a toddler yelling in the background, you know, it was just like too much. It was, it was just like, this is unbelievable that you have a much higher risk right next to you. And the media is telling you to be really scared about, you know, going somewhere else. And Kim Brooks writes about that in her book. And, and I borrowed her insight there. It's called the availability heuristic, where when an image is put in front of us again and again, we begin to believe that that is a highly likely risk in our lives. So in, I think the nineties, it was abduction, even though abduction was incredibly rare, parents started clamping down and locking their doors and bringing their kids inside because it was put in front of their eyes again and again. And unfortunately, we do not have CMV put in front of people again and again. And that's the mission of the CMV Foundation. That's the mission of my book is to say we are here. 
keep seeing us. Like, you know, we need thousands of reminders that CMV is a real risk and, and we have to do that through repetition and, and, and showing it just as was the case with the Zika virus. And Zika had some visible qualities that made it more noticeable than CMV. And that's a whole nother can of worms, but it was, it was highly recognizable because of microcephaly and because of the visible presentation of children who live elsewhere. And so we could also kind of otherize Zika where CMV is often asymptomatic and it's right here and it is not presented by the medical community. So I think we really just have to like continue, you know, continue our work. Here we are, here are, here are our children. And here is a pregnant woman and here's what you can do. Thanks, Megan. Yeah, we, and I think, um, again, I could talk about this all day. Um, I, I have one more question, then I'm going to turn it over to Leah for, um, for a couple more from her. But you talk a little bit about, um, you know, being a different kind of mom now. And so I'm on page 122 and you say, I'm a different kind of mother now, more wounded, more resilient because of Anna. I am more than I have ever been. Oh, I could cry. I mean, <laughs> about that. Talk about how you're, you're different now. I'm different now. And, and I, I don't want to go back to who I was before. Yeah. Yeah. I think they give us a tenacity and a, I don't know. They're just remarkable kids. I think, I think there's just something really mysteriously deep about children who have disabilities or who are deaf or who are navigating the world in a way that we watch more closely. I just think it makes our lives more precise like I am looking at you being this amazing person. And I missed so many of those moments. I feel with my oldest daughter who was typical, I didn't stop to say like, what an incredible thing. What an incredible human being (laughs) you are for, for all these thousands of reasons throughout the day. And I think with Anna, not knowing if she would do typical things or if she would live or if she would eat or, you know, all of those things that we take for granted, it was this victory every time that she did something that I would have negated to notice. And so, you know, I think, I think there's two things there. It's like, there's a woundedness and, and a sadness when, when our children are affected by something that we may have prevented. And yet like, would we have prevented the grand mystery that they are? No way. And so it's hard to even really articulate, but there just is something amazingly novel when you have a child like our children. Yeah. It feels like the purest, it feels to me like the purest form of love in parenthood because I love that. You're just loving them with no expectation of getting anything back at least that's how it is it's just Mm -hmm. it's so just loving her exactly how she is Mm -hmm. and having no expectation for what 
what's going to come back at me from that. Do you know what I mean? I don't know yeah. if I'm describing that right, but yeah. but yeah, it's it's amazing. You're right. It's it's just an amazing experience. Yeah, I read um, Emily Rapp Black's book, The Still Point of the Turning World, and her son had Tay-Sachs disease, and she knew that it was terminal, and her love for him was luminous. I mean, it was. It was it was a love without expectation. She could not have grand expectations because she knew that it was terminal, and yet he exceeded everything that she would have expected, you know? and and it's, yeah, it's, I think, I think especially parents whose children are going to have short lives, there's a concentratedness to their time with them that is just stunningly, heartbreakingly beautiful. No, thank you, Megan, for adding that. I I have coined it pure love on a on a daily continuum. I mean, and just, and this is from someone on the outside. So for folks who who don't know, I'm an ally in the CMV space. I I don't have any kids, and so it's always just mind blowing. And Amanda's right. We can stay on here about another two hours because I I have questions mm-hmm. around that too. But it's always mind blowing to see the perseverance and strength and what I call pure love in the truest form that folks have in the CMV community and and all parents, all parents should have for their children. And so I just, again, applaud you and give much kudos to just being tenacious enough to share your story, um, to share the hard parts, to share the hidden parts, to share the private parts, to share the journey. Because it's certainly, as you've said, it's not been easy. And so again, I just applaud you. We applaud you. Kudos on a job well done. And we just want to continue to promote, 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 promote this wonderful work that you've created. So please share with our listeners, you know, where, where can they purchase the book? Anywhere. (laughs) Ideally at an independent bookstore and basically anywhere that books are sold, it should be there. And if it's not, then there's another way that you can advocate. If they don't have my book, ask them to order it. So it's Remedies for Sorrow and the publisher is Doubleday. And if you are an audiobook listener, it's on Audible and Amazon. So yeah, it should be out there. And thank you so much for putting it out there again and again. Um, You're my favorite organization and I'm just so honored to represent the CMV community. No, and Megan, we're truly honored to have you. So thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for sharing your story. Everyone, please go out and purchase a copy of this amazing piece of work. Um, Share it with your loved ones, others in the CMV community as well. And be sure to stay abreast of the organization's upcoming events and activities. You can visit our website at nationalcmv.org or any place on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, we are active and you can stay abreast of our activities. So thank you so much, Megan, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me.